Well, let's turn now to 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2. I already gave you a heads up about that. We are just starting a series this morning through this letter that uh, the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians in the first century. And so this, uh, I hope, will prove to be timely and um, instructive and strengthening to us in ways that we don't even know we need right now, but that we will. As we open the scriptures together, let's stand in honor of the reading of God's word and with an attention to his voice and authority in it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for just this fresh journey into this letter together, and we open it now, as always, with expectation that you have something to say to us that is timely, that is living and life-giving, that is instructive, challenging, and that will change us. Lord, you know every heart, every life, every circumstance, and what it is we need to hear and so we ask you would speak your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory and our good always lord move me out of the way now as you always do use my voice as your instrument today for christ's sake amen you may be seated well when i uh wrote a newsletter article this week for those who saw that. I've kind of made reference to this series upcoming and mentioned that, you know, life this year for us uh, probably will have opportunities for us to be uh, anxious and angry and agitated and all those kinds of things. It doesn't necessitate that we be that way if you didn't read the article, uh, it, but it will probably give opportunity for that. And that, in some respect, that's no different than every other year or any given week. And some are living in those kind of times right now. Life uh, has its seasons of greater or lesser stress and distress. But when life gets really distressing, I suggested, you know, when everything seems to go sideways, there are a couple of really key fundamental questions we always need to come back to and ask ourselves. What is true and what is ultimate? What is true? That is, what what does God say is true about himself, about us, about our relationship to him, about the world we're a part of and our relationship to the world and God's relationship to the world and so on. In light of whatever we're experiencing at any given time, what what does God say is true And then what is ultimate? That is, what what is final? What is of greatest importance? And what you'll find almost all the time, 
whatever it is that we are anxious or distressed about is not ultimate. And it is not final or eternal or lasting. What is true and what is ultimate? Those are uh, questions that are really, really helpful in reorienting us. In fact, we don't need to wait until we're in great distress. It's much better for us to ask them routinely before we get into great distress because they help us stay properly oriented in a world that constantly, constantly causes our minds and hearts to drift. Many of you have had the experience of being in the water at the beach, you know, being beach people. We've probably, many of us, probably most of us have had this experience uh, at one time or another of being in the water at the beach, swimming, just sort of wading and bobbing around in the water, maybe body surfing, uh, whatever it is that you're doing out there in the surf. And there's that lateral current, that longshore current that runs uh, parallel to the shore that carries you down the beach every time you lift your feet off of the sand, right? To be in the water is to be drifting, right? You know the experience I'm talking about. Many times you don't feel it happening. You don't, you're not conscious even that it is happening. But if you just, if you swim and you come up for air, you've drifted. If you know what I'm talking about, say amen. And that was an easy one. You don't even have to be very spiritual, right, so far to know that one. But just to be in the water is to be drifting. And so routinely you have to look back up to the shore, right? To see where are the beach chairs or our towel or our umbrella, where's mom and dad, or whatever the case may be. You've got to routinely look back up to see how far have you drifted and where do I need to move back to and that sort of thing. If you're the child, you've been instructed to do that. If you're the parent... And you're watching your child that in spite of the fact that they've been instructed to do that, they're not doing that. And so you say, Johnny, over here, come in. You know, the, the universal hand signals that have a tone to them, even if they don't hear the words out loud, right? Constantly redirecting, reorienting, and so on. Our, our Christian life is that way in a certain respect. That is, to, to be in the world as a Christian is to drift. And there's a certain sense in which we could say that, you know, that doesn't have to be so, but, but it just is so. We're not all, we don't, we just not, are not always 100% of the time grounded with our feet on the shore, as it were. We get our attention invested in things of this life. It's our jobs, it's our family, it's our pursuing our dreams and all kinds of other things, and they can be good things. But we take our eyes off of the Lord, off of what's true, off of what is ultimate, and we drift. And it is just part of living in this world. To be in the world is to drift. We don't always feel it. We don't even know it's happening. But every once in a while, routinely, we need to stop 
and look at where the Father is, so to speak, right? We need to recenter, reorient ourselves, and sometimes we need to hear the voice of the Father calling out to us, saying, hey, over here, come in. In a sense, Peter's letter here uh, serves as the Father's voice crying out to his people to help us see how far we've drifted and to help us get reoriented and re-secured, as it were, in our stand and our relationship to him. And Peter offers that to us. So we know a little bit about Peter, right? We know actually, but we know best, sort of a different Peter. We know the young Peter that we were introduced to in the Gospels, primarily, to some in the book of Acts as well. He was still a, a, a young man, probably in his 20s as he was engaged in the ministry of Jesus during the life of Jesus, probably in his 20s. We don't know that for certain. But you remember this guy, right? He was passionate, but he had more passion than discretion sometimes. He was impulsive. He would act and speak sometimes impulsively, kind of put his foot in his mouth. If he were alive today and in ministry, the people around him would be discouraging him from being on Twitter. (laughs) Right, Peter, don't tweet late at night. You know, the PR team would be trying, would be cleaning up after him all the time. He'd be saying things, you know, that he'd have a hard time reeling back in. He was that kind of personality, full of faith, but also full of pride. And he would learn humility the very, very hard way. As the, as the lesson of humility tends to be, But when we think particularly about his denial of Jesus three times, the man who just uh, was sure he would go to death with Jesus, he, he thought of himself as being stronger than he really proved to be. Well, this letter is probably written 30 years or so later, maybe more than that, uh, by a mature, a much more mature anyway, humble, wise, and discreet Peter. We get real, dense, nutritious food, uh, spiritual food from him here. It's writing probably from Rome. There's certain things we don't know. There's lots we don't know for sure, and that if you read sort of the background on this kind of thing, scholars debate about it as they do everything else, particularly when you get secular, non-believing scholars involved, they'll uh, debate about everything that we have any level of confidence in. You don't need to read that. Uh, Thankfully, I read it, so you don't have to. But but either way, we, uh, he's probably writing from Rome, but writing to Christians in the part of the world that we now know as modern Turkey. Now, some of us are geographically challenged. You don't know where modern Turkey is any more than you know where Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia are, and that's okay too. Uh, What's maybe helpful for us to know is that these regions he names here, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, are all kind of neighboring regions in that part of the world such that 
there's probably going to be a messenger who, who goes and visits. He makes a tour through that part of the world and visits all of those regions and the churches in those regions and delivers this letter and reads it to them. Along the way, that'll be copied uh, for those churches to hold on to and so on, and as it was with the other scriptures. But that's who he's writing to. And more than most New Testament epistles, this, this greeting, this introduction, uh, or, or I should say this greeting provides an introduction that lots of times we don't get in the, in the greeting to epistles. You, you think of letters like Ephesians, which we just read, and we say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the church that is at Ephesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That would be something more typical of the greeting in these epistles. This one is a little bit more substantial and provides kind of an introduction to the contents of the, that we'll get into as we go through this study. And right away, just in these first couple of verses, Peter offers two reminders, the sort of voice from the shore that help us reorient ourselves as we go adrift. Number one, he reminds us of who we are, of who we are. He addresses this to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. If you've read the New Testament letters, you know that's an unusual uh, that's an unusual way to describe Christians in any community. But that's who he's writing to. The elect exiles of the dispersion. It actually has Jewish connotations to it. I think that's quite on purpose. I think we'll find even added reason for that as we go through uh, this letter. Elect exiles of the dispersion. That's the way he describes Christians. And so that says a few things to us that are important, even to us sitting right here, right now, as Christians that are important for us to be reminded of as we drift. It tells us that we are God's people by God's choosing. If you have said yes to Jesus, have trusted in him, committed your life to follow him, you are part of God's people by God's choosing. Elect. Elect. He came to the orphanage, as it were, and chose us for adoption into his family. Now, of course, the way that we experience that, the way we came to faith, we, we, however many people we have here today, there are that many different stories of how we came to faith in him the route, the means, the circumstances, and all that kind of thing. And yet entirely by his uh, orchestration and design and by his choosing, we are made part of the people of God. And this is, it's really hard to emphasize this well enough or probably to communicate it clearly enough how reassuring and how reorienting this is intended to be for us. But from the early in the book of Genesis, God revealed his plan to make and preserve a people for himself. 
right? Through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had become known as Israel, of course. But through centuries of slavery in Egypt, generations of Jacob's descendants, through later the leadership of Moses and Joshua, the judges, kings, many of which who were evil and bad kings, some good ones as well, like David, through the period even of captivity, exile in Babylon, and then the return from exile. Through all of that, through all the time that, uh, in which those events transpired, God created and preserved for himself a people. Even in all those times when it looked like all was lost and that they were all were forsaken, God had for himself a people. And we, beloved, are part of his people. Their story is your story. And that's one of the things, one of the reminders he issues to us by calling us elect. But he also calls us exiles, which tells us we are strangers in this world. This is one of the things we need to be reminded of is that we are strangers in this world. This is not our home. And and the things that distress us over and over and over and over are things of this world that are not ultimate and really not even ours to lay hold of with a very firm grasp. We're exiles. Exiles, of course, are people sent away from their homeland and kept away from their homeland. Again, like in a, 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 to a certain degree, like the Jews were when they were taken away into exile to Babylon. That's different in the sense that they all went there together. As opposed to his description here, he goes on to say that these are elect exiles of the dispersion scattered abroad in a variety of places. But exiles are sent away and kept away from their homeland. Wherever they live, they are foreigners and strangers. And probably they are usually treated like foreigners and strangers. The initial recipients of this letter were not literally exiles any more than we are. They had become, they lived in, in the part of the world they were presently living in. They had become Christians, many of them having been pagans before, uh, almost certainly some former Jews among them as well. But wherever they lived, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, Wilmington, <laughs> wherever they lived, when they believed the gospel and began to live in obedience to Christ, they became cultural outsiders. This world is not our home. Our message, our way of life 
are not popular. Our message and our way of life are growing less popular. The shame, ridicule, social exclusion that can come along with that are just part of the deal, so to speak. And again, the part of the struggle for us is that is far less our experience than it was the people in receiving this letter in the first century and that it is today for lots of Christians in other parts of the world. They know before they say yes to Jesus what the cost is. And they know if it's only ridicule and shame, they get off easy because it may be real persecution, beatings, death, imprisonment, and so on. But that's part of what is intended. We said yes to a king on death row. A king sentenced to death to be executed. A king who himself, in the course of being executed, was mocked and shamed and ridiculed. That's who we said yes to follow. Life as an exile is part of what we signed up for. And we need to be reminded of that, beloved, because we like this world. We want this to be our home. We want to have our feet in two kingdoms and keep them there. And again, there's a certain sense in which the way that analogy plays out, that we are citizens of two kingdoms. We do live both here and in heaven, as it were. But our affections get so tied to this world that that alone is the source of a great deal of distress whenever it arises. When we find, when, when we hear the voice of God calling out from the shore saying, hey, come back over here, we find we've drifted much farther at times than we realize we had. And very often the reason is because our hearts are way too tightly knit to the things of this world. We are exiles, strangers in this world, citizens of another kingdom. And as I said, of the dispersion, I'm not going to really elaborate a great deal on that, but it also has Jewish connotations as the Jews uh, in the earlier centuries for a variety of reasons, different conflicts and so forth, had been spread from outside of their homeland to other parts of the world. You remember as Paul went, in many cases on his missionary journeys, preaching the gospel in new territory, he would first go to the synagogues in Galatia, uh, in Philippi, in Thessalonica, and so forth. And the reason there were synagogues there is because there were Jews there. And the reason there were Jews there is because they had been dispersed, scattered, And so Peter's making this connection that as followers of Jesus, as the people of God, we live scattered wherever we are, but as exiles wherever we 
are scattered. So all of that, again, is part of the reminder of who we are. We're God's people by God's choosing. And we're strangers in this world. Number two, he reminds us not only of who we are, but of God's plan and priorities. Of God's plan and priorities. He only begins to hint of it, hint at it in these first two verses, but it's a lot of what this letter will remind us of repeatedly. He reminds us that God foreknows and plans the details of our lives. He says that we are of these things, elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God. I had first written down, God knows and plans the details of our lives, but that doesn't quite communicate it adequately, does it? Like, for instance, there are all the things going on around the world right now, we know about them, but we did not foreknow them. Right? We know, we know about what happened in Israel on October 7th, but we did not see it coming. Now we know and we respond in light of what we know. That is not the way God knows. He doesn't know and go, oh, okay, well, I didn't see that coming, but I tell you, I got a plan for that. He foreknows. He foreknows. Whenever we're pressed or stressed, worried and agitated to whatever extent in the midst of those kinds of circumstances, we ever feel abandoned or forgotten, nothing we experience has escaped God's notice. Nothing we experienced did God not see coming and ha- didn't have a, a plan for how all of that is orchestrated and woven together in the beautiful tapestry that he's weaving and creating. God knows and plans the details of our lives. That's a great a great reassurance because the reality as we experience it is there are just seasons of life, circumstances we run into, and it feels like God has given up on us. I'm praying, not getting any indication God is hearing. it, It appears quite evident he's not answering. Where are you? God, it's that kind. It's being in that place, praying that kind of prayer, and God knows. He sees. He has planned, and He's working out all of the details. We're also reminded here that He's doing a purifying work in us. It says it's not only according to the foreknowledge of God, but by the sanctification of the Spirit. Really, all of this stuff is descriptive of the the work of salvation in our lives, being brought to a saving faith in Christ by God's sovereignty, being, in an ongoing way, made more holy, made into the likeness of Jesus, sanctified, by the Spirit, and that part of that life involves 
uh, a life of obedience. I'll get to that in just a moment. But But we need to be reminded God is doing a purifying work in us. Because as soon as the hard arrives in life, we want the hard to go away. Right? As soon as real adversity shows up, we want it gone. I do too. I know some language to put to that in prayers. I know some psalms that put it to better language than I can. But one of the things that's helpful for us to remember is that in that adversity, in the hardship, through the hardship, by the hardship, he is making us more like Jesus. I would go back and point only to Peter. God wanted Peter to be more humble, as I've said before. Many of us want to be humble, we just don't want to become humble. Because becoming humble is painful. When you think about the sort of folly that teaches us how to be humble, like Peter, who said, bring it on, man, I'm never going to back down, and then denies Jesus three times. It's in that regrettable decision that we make or in that terribly difficult adversity that we face that we wish we could rewind the tape and make it never happen or now that it's arrived, we wish we could make it immediately go away and God is using that to make us more holy because he wants us more to be holy than he does for us to be happy. He has set us apart for the purpose of being holy. And if you go back and read the beginning of many of the epistles, you'll get that. Even where Paul says, to the saints who are at Ephesus, holy ones, set apart. It is a God's priority to make for himself not just a people, but a holy people. And sometimes the hardship that we endure is the instrument that he uses to make us more beautiful as his bride. That doesn't mean we ever are wishing for more. Oh, oh in that case, Lord, give me some real hardship and sadness in my life. Now, we never... We never go seeking that or asking that, but one of the reasons we need the reminder is because it's those kinds of things that can make us feel forsaken when from God's point of view, it's those very things that are his instruments to make us more beautiful. And, and as I already alluded to, he also calls us to a life of obedience. He says it's for obedience to Jesus and for the sprinkling of his blood. That sprinkling of his blood is a little bit of a, uh, an ambiguous, uh, unclear sort of reference. The, the Old Testament mentions a few times sprinkling of blood, and it's not uh, precisely clear which reference to that Peter has in mind, but probably pointing to when the Ten Commandments are first given, uh, God offers this as a covenant arrangement with his people and they say, we'll do it. 
as the covenant people of God, will obey, and then they're sprinkled with the blood symbolically and sacrificially. There's probably a reference of that sort, that it is by the blood of Jesus that we become the covenant people of God, that we are, we are made God's people through Jesus and for him, and so we obey him. The call to be a disciple of Jesus is not only a call to believe in him. It is a call to obey him. That one of the most fundamental ways and one of the most important ways our faith is demonstrated is through our obedience. That we say, yes, I do believe and I believe enough to do what he says even though it seems upside down from what I ought to do, even though it doesn't appear to be in my best interest to seek the the well-being of others before myself, for example, to turn the other cheek, to give and trusting it will be given to me rather than to take or acquire for myself, myself. In other words, he calls us to a life that is upside down from the way the world would order it. And our faith in him calls us to obedience in him as God's holy people. We need to be reminded of that. Who we are and what God is up to. That he has plans and priorities that don't always correspond with our plans and priorities. That he knows and plans the details of our lives. He's purifying us through our adversities. And he purifies us even from the adversity that comes from our obedience to Jesus. But he is making us more like Jesus. He is preparing us more and more for the revelation of the glory that awaits us at the appearing of Jesus. And that's going to be a central part of the message offered to us as we go through this letter. But it's for these reasons and others that I think First Peter has an especially timely message for us as we march through 2024 that we, whenever we hear the world calling our heart toward distress, and anxiety, and all of those other uh, sort of fleshly emotions and reactions that we would look back up to the shore, what's true and what's ultimate? What is God saying about me, about himself and his plan, and how do I reorient myself in light of that? to agree with what he says and to do what he is doing on the earth even as the earth seems to become an unraveled. Well, let's pray together. Oh Lord, we bless your name. We do thank you, God, for reminders like these. And the truth is, all of us here, compared to 
the Christians that Peter wrote to in the first century in that part of the world, all of us live a comparatively comfortable life. We don't know hardship the way they knew hardship. But we do know hardship, Lord. And hard is hard. Bad things are bad. Even to whatever degree, more, more or less, better or worse, bad things are bad, and we know them from experience. And so, God, we thank you for the reminders of who you say we are and what it is you are doing and what you desire to do in us. Lord, we want to say yes to you on a personal level, and even corporately, we want to say yes, that we would be prepared for, equipped for life this year in this world as your people. Would you shape us more and more into that? Beginning even now, we invite you to do so in the name of Jesus. Amen.